Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hey guys, welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with my buddy Antoine Campbell Sr. How you doing, man? What's up, brother? How you doing? Oh man, just another day in paradise. It's a it's a good Monday morning. The phone's already ringing. Got the the cold callers in there calling, and project managers going out the door to go check on some projects. So it's a great day already. That's awesome. That's I awesome, see you're, you you're checking on some multifamily you got right. Yeah, we're looking into getting into the multifamily, and then uh, you know we 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 conquered the. Uh, the residential side, so I'm looking towards expanding to multifamily in the foreclosure. There you go, man. Good stuff. So why don't you take a quick second to kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do in real estate investing. Yeah, my name is Antoine Campbell. I'm out of Washington, D.C. Um, I primarily uh, flip. Uh, we just started wholesaling about eight months ago. And, uh, you know, I'm looking to get into buying holes and, and start building a multifamily portfolio. Awesome, man. How long ago did you uh, start flipping? Uh, I started flipping in 2017, uh, I think March 2017. Okay, that's pretty cool. So what, what drew you to uh, flipping? You know, normally it's the other way around. People start with wholesaling and then they go to flipping, but you started off with flipping. How'd you get started there? Uh, my granddad uh, uh, worked in D.C. and he was a big time contractor and I used to work on the job sites with him. And I fell in love with that, the process from the start to the end. And uh, when I wanted to start getting into real estate, I said, if, if I was ever going to become like an effective wholesaler, I definitely should conquer the flipping thing. So I, I put that task in front of me and I got through my first flip alive. And that's when I just said, okay, now it's time to switch over and just do some wholesaling as well. So it's interesting. You talk about working with your granddad there and he was a contractor and that's kind of what drew you to flipping. Is your knowledge in construction, has that really helped you as far as flipping houses go? Oh, definitely. Like when you go into a house and you can clearly see something wrong with the foundation, you can uh, see termite damage, you can know if it needs uh, new concrete in the basement or if the slab poorly pulled, like it, that, that gives you an advantage over uh, most wholesalers. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, you know, we, my partner Cassie and I, we were general contractors before we ever got into real estate investing. We actually started down the path of wholesaling first, uh, but one of the things that we realized right off the bat that stood out uh, you know, from made us stand out compared to other wholesalers is the fact that we knew how to accurately assess the rehab budgets. Right. And, and so often people are just throwing a number out, you know, 20,000, 30,000. And it's like, what is that based off of? So when you were going out and getting your early flips, were you going direct to seller or were you buying from wholesalers? Uh, direct to seller. Nice. Yeah, so, so, uh, so you were doing your own marketing right off the bat. Exactly. That's good exactly. stuff, man. You know, because more often than not, you know, you're you're kind of a, a, a unicorn in the in the rehabbing world. You know, <laughs> most often people start off with wholesaling, and and most often if you start off with rehabbing, you're going to buy from uh, from wholesalers or even off the MLS. I hear that a lot as well. Um, when you started off, what was the first marketing technique or strategy that you used to get those uh, deals? Uh, our first uh, marketing strategy was word of mouth. So we just started letting people know, hey, uh, 
if you know anybody interested in selling a house, um, I'm your guy. Let me be the guy to buy from. And uh, we got a referral from our attorney. Um, and the attorney said, "Hey, I got this lady. Uh, she's uh, uh, the grandmother just died, and it was a house left to her and her son. And she's looking to sell ASAP. I know you told me you could buy fast and quickly. So um, we went over there, we assessed the property, and we gave her a cash offer, and she accepted it. And um, we just went from there. Nice." You know, and it's funny, most, most often when I talk to investors, they want to talk about direct mail, cold calling, you know, right. now text messaging, ringless voicemails, all this different stuff. But so often we just glaze over the fact that word of mouth referrals, how important those can be because, you know, how much money are you spending for a word of mouth lead, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and to me, and to me uh, my personal opinion, word of mouth is one of the most powerful uh, marketing pieces that you can get your hands on because of the domino effect. Once you take care of one person, they literally like a walking billboard. They'll tell everybody about you. Right. So you're based out of Washington, D.C. And from what I know about the D.C. market, it's highly competitive there. Oh, man, yes. So yes. When, you, when you're looking at the, the marketing side of things, you know, you're going to be spending quite a bit of money to get leads anyways. So you went yes. that route of word of mouth and, and building up that referral base uh, pretty quickly. How long did that take before you kind of, you know, wiped that out? You couldn't do that anymore. Have you started any other marketing techniques besides just word of mouth? Yeah, so once, once I, uh, that word of mouth thing kind of like, you know, plateaued out, uh, I stumbled into like cold calling. A buddy of mine, name for shit, introduced me to cold calling and said, hey, man, that's the easy way to get leads because I know for a fact of paying 80 cents, 75 cents per uh, postcard didn't make sense to me. And I wasn't trying to spend that amount of money in this competitive DC market. So uh, we instantly start cold calling. There you go. And when you're doing that, are you hiring out a third party company? Are you using VAs? Are you, do you have an in-house team? How are you doing that? Yeah, growing up, uh, you, you were taught and trained to go straight to the source. So once I figured out how the whole process worked, I went straight to, uh, to the Philippines and you know, start trying to hire VAs. So I, yeah, I had my first VA. And uh, they do, you know, they do all the cold calling and everything for me. So it was real awesome once I got them on board. Awesome. And, you know, so often people are concerned about hiring VAs in the Philippines because of the accent. Have you ever seen that be an issue with your VAs where maybe there's a language barrier or uh, hesitancy by the seller because of the accent? Um, to be honest with you, yeah and no. And the reason why I say yes is because uh, it's definitely a cultural difference. And as a leader, uh, you have to understand what is your job and what is expected of you. And the first thing I did was uh, create a group chat on Facebook for all of our VAs. I have four VAs now currently uh, to socialize and network and mingle. And in that group chat, yes, we talk about work and get business done, but we talk about our culture. We talk about uh, what's going on in sports. We talk about the weather. We talk about what happened over here to kind of get them in line. So when they're on the phone with the seller, they won't seem, you know, in another world, you know, they, if it's raining or if it's a hurricane that happened in uh, Florida or if it's a tornado happened in Texas, they should be very aware of that. And then so when the seller's talking and having conversations about that, they could be on point. So you talk about culture there and, and something that y'all kind of talk about in this group chat. Give a couple of examples to people that maybe are in a position where they're starting to build a team and they want to start building a company culture. What are some good examples of how, as a leader, you can start building a company culture like that? 
Uh, the number one example is to just be a genuine person, to actually care about what's going on over there with them. Um, to be concerned, ask about the kids, send pictures of your kids, they send pictures of their kids, and to the point that get them on on a on a point of your operation that they respect what you're doing and they and they appreciate it, they're gonna go above and beyond. So that's the number one major thing you can do, my my personal opinion. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I mean, we we have team members across the country and everybody is living life, right? Everybody has stuff that's going on. And you know, for us, you know, a lot of us yesterday it was Father's Day. Um, and, and it's important to realize that, you know, your team is also celebrating those kinds of holidays. They have things that are going on. They have a whole nother set of culture over there where they have another, you know, kind of holidays that they celebrate. And like you said, man, uh, what is going on in the Philippines? You know, you brought up kind of the weather over here. Well, they also have weather situations over there and, and natural catastrophes in the Philippines hit a lot harder than, you know, our beautiful country that can handle those things. We're set up for those things. Right. Um, just for the fact that we pay them, you know, penny on the dollar compared to what we pay people over here, um, it, it's a huge culture difference. And, and so that's very important that uh, you take the time to, to talk to them and kind of feed them your vision as the leader. Uh, one thing that I think people struggle with is motivating cold callers. What are some of the things that you do to keep your cold callers motivated because they are the lifeline of your marketing channels? What are some things that you do? Um, the, the number one thing I do is uh, congratulate them on the small wins. Whether or not uh, we all set uh, quarterly rocks and expectations for all of our callers, including myself, which I'm not a caller. And uh, when I see something that they've done that was abnormal, I immediately call it out to the group and say, hey, guys, I appreciate you guys for doing this. I appreciate you for stepping up doing that. And I always say thank you. No matter if I'm paying you or not, I always show gratitude and thank each and every one of them. And a little bit of appreciation goes a long way. Because I remember working a job where everybody in the job did their job, but when it was time to do something extra or spectacular, no, that's not my job. I'm not doing that shit because I'm just here to get paid to do this. But if you can figure out a way to break that barrier, man, you can really go a long ways with VAs. You brought up, you dropped a little uh, little nugget there. I don't know if people caught it or not, but you called it a rock. So I'm yeah. assuming that means you're uh, your attraction guy, right? Oh, yeah, man. I read that book and fell in love with that book. <laughs> so real quick, we, we've talked a lot on the podcast about traction and, you know, having the visionary and the integrator and all of that, but we've, we haven't talked about rock. So what are rocks? And explain that and break that down for the listeners so they understand. Yeah, so, so what I got from the book is, um, maybe I'm wrong, but rocks are like just uh, individual uh, goals and objectives that you give someone. And you can break it down weekly, monthly, or quarterly, or yearly. And we, and we do it that way. We do a weekly rock, we do a quarterly rock, and we do a yearly rock to the point that uh, we all have the same alignment and interest for our goals and stuff. But it's just separately. So, like, two of my cold callers, they more so cold callers, and then they help with list pulling, lead generation, and all that. So I set an expectation that, hey, I want to accomplish uh, getting 20 appointments this week. And then that's a rock for that particular person. And then every Thursday we meet, and we had that one-hour meeting, like in traction, and we go through all the overviews of what was the wins, what was the losses, uh, what could we done better, what's improvement, uh, and then at the end of the meeting, what's the outcome, and how could we move forward. 
So I, I think the, the best way that you described that there was set expectations, right? Yes. yes. So often as leaders, we do a very poor job of setting expectations. I personally struggle with this because I feel like, like my, the way my brain functions is the best way I can put this is I assume everybody has the same goals and determination and vision that I have. And I don't take the time to adequately, you know, voice that expectation that I have for every team member and having those weekly meetings and having those rocks, like you said, where you're setting that expectation, you're saying, Hey, cold callers, I want 20 appointments next week. Now the following Thursday, when you have your meeting, how do you both handle when you've achieved the rock or when you've missed that rock? How do you handle those two situations? Yeah, so when we achieve it, you know, it's just nothing but gratitude and congratulations. And there are company incentives for like, you know, money and, and things like that um, that we provide. But if we don't, then we figure out, okay, there's a leak somewhere. What what am I doing wrong? Is it the data I'm providing you? Is it the type of list we have? Is it the time of day? And that's where uh, we go, let's look, go a little deeper with the conversation. Uh, the, the VAs, they send me a daily report. It's called a daily Asian report. And within that report, it shows our daily highlights and our daily lowlights and then some notes. And then I get that on my desk every day automatically at 7 o'clock via Podio. And once they fill it out, it automatically gets emailed to me. And I sit there at night and I read through it. And I'm able to catch the fire and put it out before the next day to figure out, okay, you went from a 12% contact rate down to a 5% contact rate. What, what's going on? And then before Thursday would come, most of the things that they're going to bring up was already addressed because of we get this uh, daily report. I love it. Well, what dialer are you using for cold calling? Um, we're currently using a Mojo Triple Line dialer. Yep. And that's pretty popular um, for anybody that's looking to get into to cold calling. Uh, Mojo Dialer is is probably one of the most popular. Uh, we used it for a very long time. We recently, probably in the past six months, transferred over to Call Tools. Um, it has a ten line dialer, and that was just for for us, you know, trying to get more more you know numbers dialed and trying to increase that volume. Right. Uh, but Mojo Dialer is is also a great resource for that. So let's talk about when you're setting appointments. Is it just you, or do you have other team members that are also running those appointments with you? To be honest with you, uh, everything's done over the phone. So uh, I don't really have no an involvement with the day-to-day appointments that is, or actually going on appointments or anything. So uh, it's my VA that actually taking care of it. And, and that's because you are based out of D.C., but you also do stuff virtually now, right? Right, correct. correct. So, so what markets are you now virtually investing in? Um, we in a bunch of markets, but we kind of trim the fed off some of the markets, and we kind of start really focusing on Ohio as aggressively as we can. Charlotte, uh, it's crazy that uh, I'm in uh, Harrisburg, but I'm not actually wholesaling Harrisburg. I just bought it. So we starting to uh, ramp up uh, marketing in Harrisburg, and as well as St. Louis. Um, St. Louis is a really tricky one because on one block, a house is worth this much, and then in between that same block, a house is worth that much uh, just because of the subdivisions are different. It's, it's real crazy to comp a property out there. Yep, and, and we own quite a bit of properties in St. Louis, and uh, I would second that. It is a tricky market. Um, we almost own all of our properties in two zip codes, and at this point in time, I've, I've 
I'm almost scared to venture out of those two zip codes because I'm like, I figured out those two zip codes. I'll, right. I'll just keep right. going right there. I don't want to try to figure out the other zip codes. Um, that's interesting. So at what point in time did you go from just flipping houses in the DC market to, hey, we're going to expand to start virtually wholesaling or buying and holding in other areas? Um, when I seen my fellow investor friends buying properties at 83% ARV and they still need a full gut, and, uh, and I'm like, how in the hell can you make money? So I naturally said, you know what? I'm going to go somewhere else and let you guys uh, take this this ill when it, when this correction comes. I don't want no positive. Right. And and you know what, man? That is so um, important for people in markets like D.C., uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I, I'm hearing a little bit about it in Las Vegas and even here in, in Dallas-Fort Worth where I'm located. You know, some of these markets, it's just – Investors are getting so aggressive with where they're willing to purchase. You know, it, it, you know, back in 2014, 2015, it was 70%. Then it went to 75 and then it went to 80. And, and like you said, now we're getting to 83, 85%. And it's like, it's a simple mathematical equation. I mean, at some point in time, you're, you've run out of money. <laughs> like you have to have holding costs. You have to pay realtors to sell properties. Exactly. Um, where's the money coming from? And, you know, when you were taking down your flips, were you using hard money, private money, your own cash? How were you financing those? Oh, um, we were, we were using private, private money with a combination of hard money. So we used the private money as a down payment on the hard yeah. money. And see at that point in time, and, and that's exactly what we do too. Right. But at that point in time, you know, you're, you're paying, I don't want to say double the interest because that's not accurate, but you have two different people that you have to pay, right? Exactly. And when you're looking at this and, and you're buying at tight numbers, I mean, dude, it doesn't take much for a, a marginal deal to become a loss because exactly. if it's just like one rehab item or a deal that you thought was going to sit on the market for you know 20 days turns into 60 days for whatever reason, and a lot of times, man, things that people don't want to talk about is, is what happens if you accept a contract on a house that you're rehabbing and they drop it during the inspection period? Your days on market goes way up. And if you're buying at those 80 to 83 to 85% of Airbnb minus repairs, dude, you're, you're going from making, you know, a small amount of profit to hoping you break even on those marginal deals. So it's very, flipping houses is a tricky thing. I, I wrote a post in our Facebook group about it last week where I was like, you know, flipping houses can be really fun, but there's also points of times where it can be, <laughs> it can be really hard. Man, it's an art to flipping houses. Uh, most people, they, they get it wrong when they back. And you make your money when you back. And, and that's the one thing I always told man, my wife that I would go uh, squabble fucking toilets at McDonald's before I lose somebody money. So, like, you're dealing with hard money money, then you're dealing with private lender money. And to me, your reputation is your most valuable asset. So, it, that's why we decided to venture out to different markets. When you were flipping houses, or as you are flipping houses, I, I should stop saying when you were, because you still are. Yeah. When you're buying, do you have a set criteria of location or price point or ARV that you won't buy outside of or are you just buying anything that hits a certain percent of margin yeah so so now like we 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 we, we be all conservative now um, at first we was you know we was buying five six hundred thousand dollars type of houses so now we 
I won't touch anything less than a $200 ARV house. And the simple reason is affordability. Uh, as, you know, as long as you can get a house for a certain price point, there's going to be a substantial pool of buyers that can afford it at that price point. So once you start breaking out into the three, four, five hundred thousand dollar price point, you got a you got a different type of buyer. So they're not like a first time home buyer. This might be their second house they purchased. They already know how it is. Uh, they've been around the block a few times. They know how to ask for the seller subsidies and you know all this all this stuff. So at the end of the day, I think once we stay up underneath that two hundred thousand dollar price point, even if all else fail, uh, we always try to make sure we buy an asset that. We can try to refinance, uh, even with a hard money loan. We can refinance to one of thirty-year hard money loans and just run it out and ride and ride the storm. So that's one of our main strategies. Yeah, and the other aspect of that is is the rehab is a lot easier as well, right? Like in those lower price points, you can almost just template it out and make it pretty much cookie cutter every single time. Is that something that y'all have implemented? It, exactly what we're doing. So right now, like our last two flips, uh, same bathroom, same kitchen, uh, you know. Everything's the same, almost the same layout, the same size square foot. Like, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel right now. I'm trying to do what Henry Ford did is like make an assembly line and just be able to pump properties up. I love it. I love it. So, okay, let's move on from the flipping to the wholesaling side of things. So, okay. you said you're, you know, you're cold calling, your VAs are, are kind of handling the acquisition side of things. Yes. What, how are you teaching your VAs or? What is the process in which they are making offers for you? Yeah, so it's a, it's a formula. We're still using a 70% ARV formula in certain markets. And then uh, markets like St. Louis, my, my sister Christina told me how to use her cash flow formula. We're still trying to perfect it, but uh, it, it's working. So uh, at the end of the day, we, 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 we uh, sell at 70% and we try to buy between 50 and 55%. It all depends on the numbers and how much work it needs. Gotcha. And when... When the VAs are analyzing the properties themselves and they're pulling the comps, how are they analyzing the rehabs? Are they asking the sellers? Are the sellers sending them pictures or videos? Or you know, what is the process there? Because that would be, I think, something that people would struggle with on teaching a VA on how to estimate the repairs. Yeah, so on uh, each market, we have a, a, a PowerPoint, a, not a PowerPoint, an Excel sheet where this is what the average cost per square foot is to do a, a, a complete renovation. Um, and they use that uh, sheet. Then we have a desired assignment for the amount we would like to make. And then we uh, have a spreadsheet. Um, and then we uh, go around and we find, uh, you know, similar properties for the sold for the lowest comp, you know, similar uh, square foot, all that good stuff. And then we find uh, similar properties with the highest comp. And then we plug all these numbers in and it spits out a, a, a certain number that we should be at. So, like, we usually start offering around uh, about 45%, 50% uh, of the ARV. And they're trained and taught never to go over uh, 60%. There you go. And, and say, you know, they're on the phone with a seller and the seller's like, all right, I agree to your price. Are they writing up the contract right then and there and sending it over through DocuSign or something along those lines? Yep, they send it over through DocuSign. And if there's a wax thing that needs to be done, because a lot of it, out, you got to remember, most of the people we buy from are over the age of 50. Some of them don't even work, they don't even have an Android phone to even be able to sign DocuSign. So we usually overnight them a contract. They're old-fashioned. They only do business through the mail. They don't believe in the internet. The internet's the devil. <laughs> so, um, we, we definitely uh, have a, that process figured out. And then, uh, you know, five the pictures, uh, we, we just ask them, hey, um, how much work do you think the property need? Uh, when the last time uh, you update the kitchen? When the last time you update any major stuff? And, and then say, well, we asking you this. This is going to be based on our offer. 
Now, when we send out, what we do is we uh, have an inspector or a picture taker, but we call them inspector. And then we tell them, well, when we send out our inspector to do our inspection, um, hopefully everything you told us is true. And if, if there's something, some discrepancy within our inspection report, then we got to come back and talk about it. We don't say words like renegotiate and stuff like that because that's scary. We just say we'll come back and uh, revisit the conversation. Right. And, you know, what we do is we use them pictures in the inspection as another uh, as another way to get a price reduction um, just in case we was off with our numbers or we missed something or he didn't tell us it was a big hole in the floor. Uh, right. So stuff like that. So you talked about that inspector. Is that an actual inspector or is that like a local investor that you know or how um, are you it, it, on that role? It depends. It depends. So typically we use bpophotoflow.com. They're very awesome, but obviously they don't service every single zip code or area that we find houses in. So we usually uh, make an ad on Facebook or post on my page. I'm, I'm pretty popular. So someone will go out there and I pay them, uh, you know, 50 to 100 bucks and take the pictures. Um, yeah, so. Let's talk about the, on these virtual markets that you've kind of expanded into. What are some of the things that you're doing to build your cash buyers list to sell these properties? Um, the number one main thing we did, we did was uh, we purchased cash buyers data fee. And what we do is we go into that system. And then once we got something on the contract, uh, we typically pull all the buyers who paid cash for properties in the last six months. And then we it shows us the history of properties they bought by similarities. So we typically uh, focus on buyers who bought at least five properties in the last uh, two years with cash. And we build it up that way. And then we uh, uh, extract all that data. And then uh, my uh, VA, she's in-house. She uh, manually skip trace them. And then another VA cold call them, just like you cold call a seller, and prospect them and put them in a rotation. If they're interested, um, uh, we'll send them out the details about the deal. And, uh, we take a lot of great pictures. And we try to be professional as possible so they can make good, decisive decisions. If they want to go see the property, we had that same picture uh, take a go walk the property and we pay them again. So let's talk about that. When you're cold calling a cash buyer, are you cold calling them and saying, hey, I know that you've bought five deals in the past two years in this area and we have a property? Or are you cold calling saying we're going to have properties in this area? It, most times, most times we are calling for a specific property we already have on the contract. Just because we want to achieve the highest price possible. We already know what they pay for, what they buying it in that particular area. So we're going to target them first before we release it to the, the you know, the other list we have. You know, a, a general list that people blast to and stuff like that. So we'll try to call them first to try to make a one-on-one -on -one connection to say, hey. And then we'll use like a in tactics, like a little whisper, like, hey, uh, my boss don't know this. Uh, I got this deal on my desk. Uh, he wanted me to uh, see if you're interested in it. We know that you bought a few properties in the zip code. So here's the details about it. You got a good email I can reach you at. And at the same time, we actually collecting data from them because they're giving up the email address and all that. And we're still going to add them to the buyers list, even if they're from us right now. But see, as, as a cash buyer in multiple markets, I like that strategy better than the cold calling because I get cold calls all the time. And right. I, I don't want to blow somebody off. But I mean, if you're calling me saying I'm going to have deals in St. Louis, it's like, okay, here's my email. I got other things to do. Exactly. But if you're exactly. calling me saying I got 123 Main Street in St. Louis and, you know, you can buy this thing for $25,000 today and it's going to rent out for $800 a month. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk. Send me that. Yeah. Send me those pictures right now. 
I want to see him before everybody else because if that's legit, I'm ready to sign the contract right now. Now, exactly. if you call me with, you know, just, hey, I want to talk to you and, you know, ask you what's your criteria and all these questions. I mean, dude, sometimes these cold calls to be on cash buyers list can be 10 minutes long. And right. I'm not trying to be rude, but it's like, dude, you got you to gotta pay attention to who your audience is. Like, if, I, if you have 10 minutes to sit there and tell a wholesaler all of that information, then you got problems in your business. You need, you need to be having more things on your plate to be handling. So, exactly. so I, I, I love the way that that's how you handle your cold calling uh, with cash buyers. So outside of that, man, I think we have a, a pretty good idea of where you are in, in your business. I know you have a, a couple of you know, big announcements that you're making and even an event that you have coming up uh, later this year. So why don't you take a second to kind of talk about your event that you've got coming up. Yeah, so uh, I got an event called Drip. Um, it's called uh, we, we call it Drip because it just sounds tight, but it's an acronym. <laughs> it's a uh, it's double uh, revenue, increased profits. So we we see everybody. They have, everybody have a typical wholesaling conference, a typical fix and flip conference. But there's no one like that's really doing a conference unless you spend twenty, thirty k for a mastermind where they they you know bring your laptop. I bring my laptop. We all on the stage, and this is how we do business. This is the spirit you need. This is how you manage your people. This is how you track things. This is how you grow a business. This is how you get, because most people, they just hustling. And wholesaling, most wholesalers just hustling to make a check. See, I'm trying to grow a business to a point I can even make an IPO or it can become sellable um, so I can pass it down to my kids, you know. So, so that's one thing, the drip. And then another thing, uh, so many people reach out to me about the VAs. Um, I get a lot of people that, 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 uh, that, that have mixed feelings about VAs because one person on the one hand tell them, hey, uh, you don't need to hire your VA until you know what the hell you're doing. And then they're like, well, I, I work a great job and I make great money. I'm able to pay a VA. I just don't have time to do the tedious things. It's like cold calling. So I'm telling them like, man, listen, do you think the chairman of Coca-Cola went to the factory and started making Coca-Cola when he got hired? No, he went straight to the board. We don't have time. So at the end of the day, once you understand you understand systems and processes and how to manage people, um, you can go straight to the boardroom and do what you got to do and, and, and let the other people in the factory worry about making an actual Coca-Cola. So that's what we came out with, VA Mastery. Uh, um, it's a basically a, a system slash course that uh, we come in and, and train you. Because most people, they fail at VAs because they hire them and they don't have a clue how to even manage themselves in order to manage the VAs. So... We, we train you how to manage yourself, and then we train your VAs how to work in the system and be organized, what to expect. And then we train you and implement certain processes and systems like I spoke about earlier. When you get certain reports on your desk, maybe you're stuck at your government job. And uh, there's a few people that's in the system already who has a secret government clearance who can't even speak about what they do and have to leave their phone in the car because that's how secure the building is. They, they can't even pick up a call that they wanted to. So right. imagine if I can train and teach your VAs how to write offers for you, how to follow a certain criteria and expectation, and all you got to do is even say yes to the offer if the seller say yes, or you can say, well, if it meets this criteria, just push the deal forward. We can always go back and renegotiate, or we can always cancel the contract. There you go. So, uh, so let's talk about DRIP for, for a little bit longer. Uh, when is it, and where is it going to be located? Yeah, so it's obviously it's going to be in Washington, D.C. I don't feel like there's enough events coming out of Washington, D.C. as far as real estate is concerned. Um, you have to drive by Google and stuff, but um, not like a, a big, big event. Um, it's going to be in Washington, D.C. We haven't announced the, uh, the the month or the date or the venue. That's going to be August 1st. But I will tell you, uh, 
the venue's gonna be spectacular. Uh, it's gonna be nice, man. It's there gonna be go. real nice. Well, very cool, man. And then let's talk about the the VA Mastery uh, program. Uh, what's the best way for people to find out more information about that? Um, I'm gonna give you a link because I don't even know the link. Uh, this one of the links <laughs> where we use the shortener tool. So to be honest, I don't know. But it's definitely it's on the Teachable platform, and uh, you get me. And when you first sign up, you get me uh, for two hours of consultation, and we just go through your business. We go through all your personal business to figure out what's for you. Because, like I said, it's not a cookie cutter course. It's a course where uh, it's, it's tailored to your exact needs. Once we figure that out, we have an assessment. We work on getting you trained, and then my VA step in and uh, cross train your VAs and set the expectations. Uh, uh, but then you you know you get free uh, lifetime access to any local. Uh, uh, Events we have, we're going to start doing one event a quarter to, uh, for people to want to fly in and really learn how to manage a VA and what it takes to uh, run a company solely on VAs like we're doing. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. I love that. It, it's case in point, you practice what you're preaching right now. Because when right. I asked you what the link was, you said, I don't know. That, that's clear clear example right there that someone else in your company created that for you. You were not a part of that process. Exactly, exactly. I don't want to sound arrogant or cocky, but I drink. <laughs> hey, man, that, that's not sound arrogant or cocky at all. That's that's you just practicing what you're preaching, and I love it. Um, and, and and I think it's there's a lesson to be learned there for everybody that you know wants to be able to build their business the way you have. Um, I mean, let's be honest. You've only been in this business a little bit over two years. It's very impressive what you've been able to to accomplish in those two years. I appreciate it. Yeah. So. Uh, one last question. Like I just mentioned, you've, you've been in this business for two years. I love asking people, where do they want to be in the next five years? Okay, next five years. Uh, I definitely want to be in the multi-family space. Uh, I want to be around some more multi-family players. So I'm going to start going to them events. But my number one passion and goal is to be a hotel operator. Not a motel operator, a hotel operator. The ones that have like the big banquet space, the big wedding space. Uh, if I can get a hotel in five years, man, I believe I accomplished a lot. There you go. Well, where did that love for, for running a hotel come from? Um, uh, I worked in the hotel industry for six years. So a lot of the systems I learned, I took from there. Um, you know Murray, that's that's awesome, man. Uh, I worked in, in at Pizza Hut for eight years yeah. um, as a manager. And a lot of what I learned as, you know, as far as running P&Ls and HR yeah. and the onboarding processes, there's a lot to be taken from those companies, right? There's a reason why they're at the level that they're at, right? And most people laugh at the job because they're looking at it from a pay grade. Right. But if you actually think about Pizza Hut and McDonald's, like them, some of the companies that originate, they're the pioneers of KPIs and stuff. Like, like McDonald's, like they got to figure it out to the point when you go to the drive-through, you set the window up until you get a the cashier the money until you get your fries. It's figured out. I don't want to take the quality should be all that good stuff. So, like, uh, some people, they just got to take that, what they learn, and really apply it to their business, and it can take them uh, a long ways. Let me tell you something about the back, the back end of a Pizza Hut, okay? Okay. When you're inside a Pizza Hut, there are signs all over the walls. Right. There's not one sign that says grind. There's not one that says hustle hard. There's not one sign back there that says, you know, you know work 24-7 or anything like that. But there are signs everywhere that says, this is how you sauce a pizza. This is how you cheese a pizza. This is how you put, this is how many pepperonis you put on a pizza. It tells you every, it tells you how to cut a pizza. 
It tells you how to pick up the thing and slide it off the board into the box. It shows you how to fold the box. They have signs on there on how to put it in the bag appropriately, how to stack things. I mean, there are signs. You could walk into a Pizza Hut and not know how to work. You could have never made a pizza at Pizza Hut before in your life, and there will be signs that you could walk through the whole restaurant and show you how to do everything in that restaurant. And, and that's why And that's why if I go to a Pizza Hut in Dallas, Texas, and I tell them I go to the same Pizza Hut in Wichita, Kansas, it tastes the same exact, it's made the same right. exact because it's a proven system. Exactly. And and there's a lot to be learned there as operators and business owners in our businesses. Because so often we are so worried about the next deal, right? How are right. we going to get the next contract, the next check, the next closing day? All of these details. Pizza Hut is not worried about how they're going to sell the next pizza. They're worried about how they're going to improve their processes. And then somebody is in charge of marketing and they're worried about the marketing aspect of the business and then exactly. in charge of the financials. They're worried about the financial side of things. And as operators, that's really where we have to focus is, yes, at first we have to be in charge of the systems and the marketing and the finances. But as we're doing it, we need to be documenting it and always creating systems. And I'll be honest with you, I'm preaching to the choir to myself right now. Like these are things that I need to be focused on on a daily basis. I'm working within my business. I need to be making my business better, not just working in it. But I need right. to stop and say, okay, what did I just say? Let's document that so everybody in the company understands it. And moving forward, I don't have to repeat myself, you know, week after week after week. And that's one of the things that, oh, that's one of the things that you have uh, worked on with your VAs is now your VAs, can, they fully understand the process of the cold calling, the list pulling, the negotiating of the contracts, the writing of the contracts. That's why you're now able to sell that product to help other people utilize VAs. And so that's amazing what you've been able to accomplish in a short amount of time. And I, I have to give you kudos, man. That's uh, that's awesome that you've been able to do that in such a short time. I appreciate time. it. Yeah, appreciate man. Well, that being said, Antoine, uh, I think that's all we got for today's episode. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're out there in the field, man, and, and checking on some properties and things like that. Um, any other final words for our listeners today? Man, if, if you're in this real estate thing you haven't got your first deal done, just grind harder. Just, just grind harder. Even if, like you said, you don't got enough time in the day, there's still some time for yourself. You know, like one thing like my manager told me at Gaylord, uh, Utilize all of your time. So if you're driving the car, listen to a podcast. If you're on the toilet taking a shit, go through your phone and, and work on something. Like, utilize all your time. That's all I can tell you. Absolutely, man. I saw somebody, uh, I think it was uh, Brian Ragbu. Um, he posted about the average amount of time that an American citizen spends in the car is in one year is longer than the amount of time that you spend in the classroom to get a Ph.D. I believe. And he's like, so if you utilize that time to listen to YouTube, podcast, whatever it is, you could almost in a year have a quote unquote PhD as long as you're getting good content. You have a PhD in whatever it is you want to do, flipping houses, wholesaling houses, finding a hotel, whatever it is, it's available nowadays. So great point. Antoine, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Guys, that's our episode for this week. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a thumbs up on YouTube or leave us a review on iTunes, whichever platform you listen to it. 
Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault.